feels perhaps a little out of place to begin on such a happy and celebratory day, beginning a service with and a sermon with maybe a heavy or controversial topic, but I'm going to do it anyway. Every year throughout the year, there's a rite of passage with our children that has our country split. And of course, I'm speaking of participation trophies. If you're not familiar with participation trophies, participation trophies is first and foremost very difficult to say several times in a row. But participation trophies are the trophies that you get after when you compete in a recreation activity. So some sort of t-ball, softball, basketball. You go to, let's say, a Dairy Queen possibly, maybe a CeCe's Pizza or a bowling alley. And while you're there, you have a party, you celebrate the season, and then everybody on the team gets a trophy. And some people would say that this is destroying our country. This is setting people up with a sense of entitlement that if everybody gets a trophy, trophies don't really matter at all. But I do need to come before you today. I don't often admit my position on things like this, but I am okay with participation trophies. I just don't think they're that big of a deal. I, in fact, kind of like participation trophies, and I like having them. I liked them when I was a kid, because let's be honest, I wasn't exactly going to win a lot of things on my own, so it was nice to have some trophies on my shelf. And so to the people who would say that participation trophies are destroying our country, I would say, probably not. They're probably not that big of a deal. If I were, just by the way, to pinpoint one thing that I think has the potential to see the downfall of our country, I would say that it's probably people who feel that it is appropriate to take a banana sandwich and cover it with mayonnaise. Drew, that is going to be the thing that leads our country down into a downward spiral. But participation trophies, I'm fine with. But I get why there would be some resistance against something like that. Because it can feel like Again, if everybody gets a trophy, then that somehow devalues earned rewards and earned trophies. And we like to value victory. We like to celebrate victory. And it makes sense. Why would we not? With victory usually comes a series of time when you were preparing yourselves and training and working hard so that you could accomplish that victory. And it makes sense for that victory to be celebrated and rewarded. Sometimes, though, victories can feel hard to come by. And in the Christian life, it can often feel like a life that is marked by defeat. That we take more losses than we take victories as we pursue after Christ. That life can be difficult, that life can be hard, and that our circumstances can be overwhelming. And it can be very easy for our difficult circumstances and the the defeats that we feel in our lives to cloud our perception. Because the Christian life is meant to be one of victory, but when all we feel around us is hardship and difficult circumstances, it can be hard to see the forest because of the trees. And our victory, I think, is particularly easy to forget because it is one that we didn't earn. As Livia said, while we were singing and while she was leading worship, our victory in Christ, our salvation is not something that we can obtain. Our victory in Jesus is something that we could never earn on our own, but something that he had to win on our behalf and give to us freely. And because we didn't earn it, it can be easy to forget that that's part of who we are. But the Christian life is a life of victory. Not just now, but for all of eternity. 
And it's a victory that was won for us graciously by a loving and merciful king. And so as we continue our look through the Gospel of Luke and the teachings of Jesus inside the Gospel of Luke about the kingdom, today we're going to see more truth about the king of that kingdom. And that Jesus is not simply the king of heaven and earth, but he is the victorious king of heaven and earth that has no rival and has no equal. And that because of that, because that's who our king is, that's the kind of victory that we are able to live with and die with as followers of Jesus. And so we're going to look at two passages in the book of Luke today. One from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. And then Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. And this is the word of God. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking him from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And now from verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, as we do week after week, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you teach us and all that you give us. And God, we thank you that the Christian life is a victorious life. That even though trusting in Jesus and following Jesus doesn't make our way easier, we know that we have been promised and we have been given complete and total victory over our enemy, over death, over sin, and over shame. And so today, as we look at the victory that Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, God, we just pray that we would all leave here today holding tight to the victory that he has given us. And then when our circumstances may seem overwhelming, 
when life may feel difficult, when we may feel like we encounter more defeat than victory, help us to remember that our ultimate victory has already been won. And so because of that, we can have joy and peace in all circumstances, knowing that one day we'll receive our reward in full. So Father, speak to us as we look through your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this first passage, we see very simply that Jesus is the victorious king, is victorious over the enemy. Simple and cleanly, Jesus is victorious over the enemy. Now, I don't play a lot of video games. I'm not really good at modern video games. Once they went from two-dimensional to three-dimensional, I got really bad at them. And also, they make me a little dizzy, and I get lost. They're very big games, and you can get lost in them. I can get lost going from here to Snellville. And so, walking around this unknown world inside of a virtual console, just not it doesn't work for me. But I do really love retro video games. I love the old-school stuff, the two-dimension things where you can't go that far. But one of the games that I've always loved is The Legend of Zelda. I love the game The Legend of Zelda. It was very confusing for me when I found out that the game is not named after the little guy, but the person that you go to save. It was a very confusing time, but I figured it out, and I love The Legend of Zelda. And if you're not familiar, The Legend of Zelda is a really simple story. You have this young man who's given a calling. And at the very beginning of the game, you're just walking around, you go down a cave, and you receive your first weapon. You start, no sword, no shield, nothing, and then this old man gives you your first sword, and he sends you out. And then you go out, and the first stages are are pretty simple. And so you can handle them with your small sword, and you begin to get your skills sharpened up a little bit. And as you go, you become better at the game. Your health increases. You're able to pick up new items, and you become stronger and stronger as you go. And each stage, each world, is designed to make you better fit to fight. And then at the very end, once you have all your skills and all your health and all your tools and all your weapons then you're ready to go and fight Ganon, which is a great big bad name, right? Ganon just sounds like someone who's after you. And so then you're prepared and ready after an entire time of sharpening your skills and preparing yourselves, you're able to go and to fight the ultimate enemy. And it's just a picture of this hero's journey. We see it in video games, we see it in movies, we see it in television, we see it in books and literature. All throughout our culture, we're compelled and tied into this idea of the hero's journey, of someone who is called to something that they're not prepared to do, that they go out on this mission and through a series of trials and tribulations are shaped and refined and prepared to take on their ultimate task. And we see verse 14, when Jesus is casting out this demon of this man who is mute, it appears as though this is the kind of journey that Jesus is on. That he starts, he comes out of nowhere, and he begins going into these villages and preaching about the kingdom of God. As people begin to notice him, he starts to heal people. He starts to raise people from the dead, and now he's casting out demons. And so it looks like Jesus is on this progression to go after the ultimate enemy. But then, as always happens while Jesus is teaching and healing, some challengers arise. Some people that want to see Jesus stopped begin to question what Jesus is doing. And through their questioning, we begin to realize something profound about the ministry and the work that Jesus was partaking in. And one of the things that I find amazing, because we've seen this now several different times as we looked at the teaching of Jesus through the book of Luke, 
is that these opponents of Jesus constantly come up and they try to trap Jesus. They try to ask him questions that they don't think that he can answer. They try to put him in situations that they feel like would be too difficult for him to be able to escape. And so they're trying to stop the message of the kingdom. But what happens over and over and over again is that these people, as they're coming to confront Jesus, end up doing more to reveal the truth about the kingdom of God than they do to stop its teaching. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 15. It says, as he's casting out this demon, some of them look at him and they said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And others, to test him, kept seeking from from him a sign from heaven. And so at this point, it's getting really obvious that what Jesus is doing is not just some normal person coming along and teaching. He's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, and now he's casting out demons, and people are watching this happen right in front of their faces. And so these religious leaders knew that they couldn't deny the work that Jesus was doing anymore. And so instead of trying to deny him, they started trying to discredit him. They started trying to discount his work. And they said, yeah, he's doing these amazing things and he's casting out these demons, but he's doing it with the power of demons. He's not doing God's work. He's doing the work of demons. That's how he's able to control them. And they knew that if they could get enough people to believe that Jesus was doing this work from a satanic perspective, that he could be found guilty of blasphemy, and he could be stoned to death. And so instead of trying to teach the people that this wasn't actually what's happening, they just said, no, 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 he's just doing this from the wrong place, and we need to make it stop. But then, of course, Jesus responds as he always does. And he says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus, guys, listen, why, if I was working for Satan, if I was working for the prince of demons, why would I be casting out demons and stopping the work that's going on? That doesn't make sense. And so he immediately shuts down the accusations that they're making against him. And then as he always does, goes a little bit further. In verse 19, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? And so he says, if that's how demons are cast out, then you know people in your life and there are people around you. I'm not the only one doing this that are casting out demons. And so if I'm casting them out by Satan, then they must be as well. But then comes verse 20. He says, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here again, standing in the face of opposition, Jesus draws a line in the sand. He says, we're at a crossroads here now. There's only two ways that you can look at this. On the one hand, you said that I'm here casting out these demons by the power of Satan. And if that's the case, then you need to do with me what you would do with me. If I'm casting out demons by the power of evil, then you need to treat me as a sorcerer and you need to have me stoned to death. But... If I'm doing this the way that I say that I'm doing this, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then that means the kingdom of God is here. 
And so if I'm doing this in an appropriate way, then take care of me the way that you should. But if I'm here doing the work that I say that I'm doing, then you better stop and you better listen. And so to those who are bringing this accusation against him now, Jesus is saying, you're on the wrong side of the kingdom that you can't stop. And what's even more amazing that's going on right now is Jesus being accused by some of these people as doing the work of Satan. On the other side, there are people asking Jesus to give them signs. Asking Jesus to prove that he really is who he says he is. And so they're, while they're standing in this crowd watching Jesus cast out a demon from a person, they're saying, that's nice, but we want a sign. We want to see something that proves who you are. Jesus says right here in this passage of Scripture, I'm giving you more than a sign. I'm not telling you about a kingdom that is one day going to come. I'm telling you that if I am here casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom is not coming, but the kingdom is already here. And I love that he says here that he casts out demons by the finger of God. And it just shows this complete and total and absolute power that God has, not only over the world, but over the forces of evil as well. And as all this is happening, it feels like Jesus is building up towards this crescendo. That he's shutting down his opponents, that he's casting out demons, and it feels like now would be a good time for him to have one of those rousing speeches, you know, WWE style, where he points at the back screen and he says, I've taken care of all these, and now, Satan, I'm coming for you. Right? This is the moment where now it seems like Jesus is ready to step out and to go after Satan. But then verse 21 and 22 reveal something shocking to us. Jesus says, if there's a strong man, strongest man you can imagine, and he's guarding over his palace, and he's got all of his armor and everything that he needs, his palace is going to be safe because nobody can come against this strong man until someone stronger comes. And Jesus says when someone stronger than the strong man comes, he takes his armor away that he relied on, and he takes him and he binds him up, is what Matthew teaches us, and that he takes all of his spoils, that he takes everything that he has from him. And in this short parable, what Jesus is telling all the people around him is that he's not coming for Satan and for Satan's kingdom, that he has already paid Satan a visit, and it was a pretty quick one at that. Jesus is saying here that I have already marched into Satan's kingdom. I've already marched in to the strong man who is the king of this earth, and I've taken everything from him because he's no match for me at all. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends the disciples out to teach about the kingdom of God, when they return back, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he's telling them that when the gospel of the kingdom goes out, that the kingdom of hell fell so fast that it was faster than lightning falling from heaven. That Satan and the principalities of evil and in the kingdom of hell could not stand against the power of the gospel, that it had no shot at all. The kingdom that reigned from the fall till the birth of Christ now was not able to stand in the presence of the one true king. For Jesus' kingdom to rise, another one had to fall. And here, in the midst of all of these 
accusers and opponents. The king of heaven proved that he had no equal. Jesus said, I'm not coming to one day conquer the enemy, but I have already conquered the enemy. The gospel of the kingdom has erased the powers of hell that you people have released into the world through your sin. Just my presence here has already taken everything that Satan had and removed it from him, and he has nothing left because I am here. And then he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, here's the line. The kingdom of God has come into the world. The king of heaven is here and you're either with me or you're not. That as you cast these accusations against me, you're not aligning yourself simply against me, but you are aligning yourself on the side that has already lost. And there's the invitation there to come and to trust in Christ and to receive that victory. And Jesus gives us that same line. He gives us that same option there. He gives us that same command saying, whoever is not with me is against me. And it should be our desire because we like winning. It should be our desire to be on the side of the King of kings and Lord of lords who won the ultimate victory over sin and Satan. Not only through his death and resurrection, but even through his life and his teaching as he brings the kingdom of God into the world. And so we see that Jesus is victorious over the enemy. And then in the next passage, beginning in verse 29, we see that Jesus is victorious over death. Calling your own shot. As long as there have been sports, calling your own shot, I think, has been the most baller move that you could possibly make. Right, And when we think about it, we think about Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth has the cla- the legend around him is that he pointed to a spot in the outfield and that he hit a home run in that exact same place. And that's pretty impressive, but baseball bores me, so I don't really care about that one. I love basketball because basketball is exciting and scores a lot of points and people don't just stand around in a field all day. And so for me, when I think about people calling their shots, I think about Larry Bird. And I love hearing stories about Larry Bird because there is a level of arrogance that Larry Bird played with that maybe has been unrivaled and unmatched throughout the history of sports. And I was listening to an interview with John Stockton, who played for the Utah Jazz a couple days ago. And he said that in his rookie year, before a game, they were sitting on the bench, and they were playing the Boston Celtics. And Larry Bird, who played for the Celtics, walked by the Utah Jazz bench. He didn't look at them. He didn't acknowledge them. But he just out loud said, I'm feeling 43 today, and then walked off. By the third quarter, Larry Bird had scored exactly 43 points, took himself out of the game, and the Celtics won by 20 points. Amazing. And apparently he would do that on a regular basis. He would dribble the ball down the court, look at the person guarding him, tell them exactly what he was about to do, do it exactly like he said he was going to, and score on them. And I can think of nothing more humiliating or sad than having that happen to you. But that's it. That's, that is the most baller move that you can have in sports when you tell somebody exactly what you're going to do and you do it. And that is exactly what Jesus is about to do. In verse 29, Luke tells us that the crowds around Jesus were increasing. And we've seen this the last few times when we've looked at the teaching of Jesus. The longer this goes on, the more and more the crowds begin to increase. And it makes sense. Because if you hear about this guy who is going around teaching these amazing things about the kingdom of God, 
as he's going into villages where most of the people would not be of great wealth, and Jesus is teaching things like, blessed are the poor, for you'll inherit the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when you mourn and when you struggle. The people who were mourning and struggling and poor and oppressed would hear this message, and they would want to be close to Jesus. They would hear about this man who was healing the sick and raising the dead. And if you were sick, you would want to find your way to this man. Or if you just wanted to get an insight into what this looked like, it had to have piqued your interest. And so people would come from all over to see Jesus and to hear Jesus and to be a part of what was going on. They wanted to be a part of the movement. They wanted to see the show. And some of them wanted a sign. Because we saw very early on in this series, this was a time when people were expecting God to do something. They were ready for the kingdom of God to come into the world, and they were looking to all different prophets and would-be messiahs. And so now they hear about this Jesus of Nazareth, and they say, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's going to give us a sign for when the kingdom of God comes into the world. Verse 29, Jesus does not deal with that very gently. He says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Jesus looks at these people that are following. He says, you're you're asking me to give you a sign when the fullness of the kingdom of God is right here in front of you. You're looking for something beyond me and there is nothing greater than me. Everything that you've looked for, everything that you've longed for, everything that you hoped for is here. And then he begins to talk about some Old Testament references. And he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then in verse 32, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, this queen of the south came to look for Solomon. But when she found Solomon, she wasn't looking for something more. She sat and she heard his wisdom and she received exactly what she was looking for because she saw the, the... incredible wisdom that Solomon had and now something greater than Solomon is right here in front of you and you're going to miss it. So when the people of Nineveh heard Jonah preach, they recognized the God of mercy and grace and they repented of their sins and they pursued after God because they recognized that he was there with them. They weren't looking for something more. They received what they were looking for. But now something greater than Jonah is here and you're looking for something better and you're going to miss it. But he says, you know what? If you want a sign, I'll give you one sign. And Jesus calls it the sign of Jonah. And of course, this is that moment where Jesus predicts exactly what he's going to do. But this sign is one that the people around him would have never expected and something they would still somehow miss because Jesus is predicting not only his death but his resurrection he's calling his shot and if you were here about a year ago when we went through our series on the book of Jonah 
In Jonah chapter 1 and 2, the first half of the book, we see a lot of language that helps us understand what Jonah is trying to teach us. When Jonah runs away from the will of God, when Jonah tries to run out of the presence of God and rebels against what God tells him to do, the writer tells us that Jonah went down to Tarshish. And that when he got on a boat to go to Tarshish, that he went down into the boat to go to Tarshish. And this is a figure of speech that ancient people would have used to describe death. In the same way that we might use a phrase like passed away, the phrase to go down was an allusion to someone dying. And then in Jonah chapter 2, in this prayer that we see Jonah pray from the belly of a fish, we see him put himself at death's door, saying that death encompassed him and that he was at the gates of Sheol or the gates of death, and he was on the very last leg and about to die, and then God rescued him out. Then God brought about resurrection in his life so that he could go and continue the work that God had called him to do. And Jonah's story was a picture of hope for the people of Israel. Because in Jonah's story, the people of Israel saw their own story. Because they had rebelled against God. They were caught up in sin and idolatry, and they were in exile on the very doorstep of death. But God, through the prophets, was saying, but hold on, because someone is going to come to give you new life. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, Jonah's story is not only Israel's story, but Jonah's story is my story as well. Except Jesus, when he finds himself at the doorstep of death, wouldn't be there because of a sin that he committed or because of something that he did, but Jesus would find himself at death's door on behalf of all those who came before him and us as well. He would be there because of our sin and our shame and our brokenness, and he would taste the death that we had earned. But even though he would taste death, it would only be for a moment. And Jesus looks at the crowds around him and he says, you are going to know that the kingdom of God is here when the last great enemy falls. And this is a declaration not only about himself, but about his kingdom. You see, in the kingdom of God, there's not only power over sin and Satan, There's not only power over rulers and kingdoms, but there's power over the greatest and formerly undefeated enemy. Because you see, the Bible tells us that from Adam to Moses, death reigned because of sin. The death was the enemy that had never been defeated, that everyone, no matter how great or how poor, would one day find their end in the hands of the greatest enemy that humanity could ever have. And now Jesus is saying, there's going to come a time when I fall to that enemy, but it will only be for a moment, and you will know that the kingdom is here because death will release its grip, and the once undefeated enemy will find its ultimate defeat. And in that resurrection, Jesus not only won his own victory over death, but he shares it with all those who would trust in him. Paul says that if we are united with Christ in a death like his, that we'll also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's the ultimate hope of the Christian life. Because there are times when we face defeat and when we face hardship in this life. There are times when even though we may live and struggle and move our entire lives, that we will face death. 
But the Bible promises us that if we trust in Christ for salvation, then death is not the victor over us. But there is hope beyond death. Paul says that when we are absent from the body, that we are present with Christ. That because of salvation, that our spirits are made alive inside of us and that our spirits will never taste death, that we will live eternally. But not only do we have this promise that our spirits will live forever with God, but we have this hope that one day Jesus is going to come back to earth. As our passage of Scripture that we read today said, that He who ascended into heaven will one day come back in the exact same way. And this time He will bring heaven to earth and bring resurrection and new life. And anyone who trusts in Christ will be made new and will be made whole. And there will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrows, there'll be no more defeat, and there'll be no more death. Because Jesus Christ, the victorious King, won that victory for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. And so if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, then know that that is the gospel. That's what we call the good news. That because of our sin, we took a defeat that we could never overcome. That there was nothing that we could do to escape our sin and escape our shame and escape the punishment that comes with that. But God loved the world so much that He gave Christ. And that God, being rich in mercy, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, gave us Christ. And that through Christ we can be made alive. And as Jesus has taught us through this teaching on the kingdom of God, that it's not about who you are, it's not about what you can accomplish. It's not about how good you are or how bad you've been. It's not about how much money you have or what you're able to accomplish. It's not about what you look like or what you're able to afford. It's all about knowing and trusting Jesus Christ who makes all things new. And so if you've never put your faith and hope in Christ before, then I would encourage you to talk with me or with any of our pastoral staff about what it means to trust in Christ. If you've never been through the waters of baptism, then let's talk about what it means to go through that beautiful symbol of being buried and raised to new life and to have that hope that comes in Jesus. If you're here and you belong to the King, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you believe that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God and that you have been saved by His grace and mercy, then you have been given victory in Jesus. And this kind of victory, the knowledge of this victory, should change our lives, the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we live, and even the way that we die. And we see a picture of that. Not only in the first century in the martyrdom of the church, but we see that all over our world today as we have brothers and sisters in Christ who give up their lives and their freedom for the sake of the gospel. But that's what happened in that first century after Jesus' death and resurrection. Most of those people gathered around as Jesus ascended back into heaven, found themselves oppressed and persecuted. A lot of them found themselves put to death. Peter, who preached that first Christian sermon at Pentecost that we're going to celebrate next week, found himself put to death for his faith in Christ. All the disciples save one who was put into exile found themselves killed for their faith in Jesus and yet they were able to die well knowing that the last weapon that these tyrants had against them was death but Jesus had already conquered death. And so they were able to stand boldly in the face of death 
and be unafraid because they knew the victorious king was on their side. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus teach through these passages of scriptures in Luke about having no fear, about being unashamed to present our hope in Christ before other people, about being prepared for the kingdom of God, about not being anxious and about being ready. And all of these things are very difficult for us to do because, again, life can be a fearful thing and this world can be a fearful place and this world drums up worry and anxiousness and it can be very difficult to navigate. But with this foundation, knowing that Jesus is our victorious King who has not only conquered our greatest enemy, who has not only conquered our sin and our shame, who will not only one day conquer all kingdoms and principalities, who has conquered death itself, we are able to rest on that hope and rest on that foundation and trust in these words and know that when Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow, that we don't have to worry about tomorrow because it's in the hands of the one who can handle it on our behalf. And so let's take this message of victory and over this next week, meditate on it and think about it and thank God for it. And then over the next several weeks, as Jesus gives us these commands that seem very overwhelming and very difficult, let's keep the hope of the victory in Jesus on our hearts and on our minds and allow that to compel us into action, going out and doing what Christ has called us to do, to love God with all that we have and to love our neighbors ourselves with boldness and with passion because we have victory in Jesus. Let's pray.